We're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians um, in 18. Paul's given us the background, the information that he's heard about the situation in Corinth. And, and, and here in, um, in 18, he begins his, um, he begins his discussion of, of the cross. And um, he has to open and address all of the problems by, um, in the right way. Because Paul is not only um, being asked to weigh in on this problem or the divisions at Corinth, um, he's also a figure in it as well. Not by his choosing, not by his design, but he is. If you go back and look at um, uh, verse 12, uh, he says, What I mean is that each one of you says... I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Uh, was Paul crucified for you? Now, Paul could jump into this and uh, make it sound like he's rallying his troops for the Paul party and saying, now listen, I'm the one who, uh, uh, you know, I'm one of your earliest founders. And of course, those who are uh, more, maybe, maybe they're not necessarily opposed to Paul, but maybe they're more favorable towards one of these other speakers. This, for them, might just be the opportunity to turn that off. So, uh, you know, it's just like our, our parties today and our elections. It doesn't matter who's with this party or that party. You know, people are just opposed to it. I've noticed this in the media where the, the, the news media, they just switch. It's like, they, it's like halftime at a game, you know, and they switch end zones or they switch sides of the court. You know, well, now we're not for the president anymore. We're against the president. Well, we were against the previous president. Now we're for this one. But, hey, we're all just being unbiased and objective, of course. And, uh, you know, none of us can see through it like that. I'm just letting you know. But this is why Paul has to move into this carefully. And besides, Paul is not interested in defending himself. And when, he, when we get to chapter 4, you're going to see him say that. Uh, but what is, it, what is the point that he wants to make? We're going to read here in a second. Okay, 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks demand wisdom or seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, and that's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who, beca- who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. We'll pause right there. Uh, that doesn't end Paul's argument, but uh, we're going to take this in pieces. Watch in, this, in these four chapters when Paul says, as it is written, as it is written. He's building a case on Scripture. Now, for Paul and the Corinthians, Scripture will be what we call the Old Testament. But as far as they're concerned, it's the Word of God. It's Scripture. And, uh, and I do think we are a bit uh, quick to uh, divvy up the Bible and act like the Old Testament is just some relic. I mean, these are the words of the prophets. This is the revelation of God. It's still, it still has meaning. It still is the Word of God, and nothing uh, changes that. It does get defined through definitive, you know, it is, it's the definitive interpretation of it is through the cross and through Christ. And that's exactly what Paul's doing right here. Before he's going to say anything at all about all of their different problems and issues and the divisions or whatever else, he's going to return them to the cross of Christ because the cross of Christ changes the way a believer sees the world. We touched on this a bit this morning, noting that um, uh, this morning that, that Paul had to reconcile with the fact that a man who was crucified was the Messiah. And that, that may not strike us immediately as odd, but trust me, and I, and I hope if I'm successful, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help us walk out of here uh, every Lord's Day saying, you know, that, that, that was going to be a big pill to swallow that the Messiah was also a crucified man, that the crucified one is the anointed one. The fact that both of those could be the same is scandalous. Um, but first, let's talk about what Paul is referring to when he says, it is written. Okay, in, in, uh, in this section at the end of chapter 1, he has two quotations. Uh, they are from prophets. And they are from prophets that are delivered, prophecies that are delivered to Judah. Uh, the first is Isaiah 29, 14, and the second one is Jeremiah 9, 24. Uh, Isaiah 29, uh, 14 is, um, this is a prophecy that Isaiah is, is bringing to the people of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, southern Israel, if you want to think of it that way, and uh, they are going to ensure their security by moving into a treaty with Egypt. You've got threatening superpowers going on in the world at that time. Uh, In the 8th century, you've got Assyria, and then later on, you're going to have Babylon. And Judah thinks that it's a good idea to move into an alliance with Egypt. Now think about that. That Egypt is is historically that's the nation, the empire that enslaved them, and their identity is based on God delivering them from that. And now they're about to go and seek their refuge. You, know, you can say, "Oh well, it's been centuries." Maybe so, but still, God set them up as unique. Uh, how do I know that? Well, look ahead at chapter thirty. Uh, chapter 30 of Isaiah, verse 1. 
Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not my plan, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, and they set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. And this is like a parody, like a bad, you know, we... uh, you seek Israel seeks its shelter in the shadow of God's wing. Uh, Israel uh, takes refuge in the loving faithfulness, the steadfastness, the kindness of the Lord. But instead, it's turned around here, and it's like, so instead you're going to Pharaoh. You're, you're going to Egypt. What would possess them to do that? Their own wisdom, their own realistic politics their own statecraft they see egypt as a strong ally and it's going to protect them they think that they have security in that they're putting their faith in that and you know if if god wants to come by and sprinkle a little blessing on their plan they're okay with that i mean they're still worshiping god and this is what the prophet says in in chapter 29 um chapter 29 verse let's start in verse 13 the lord says Because this people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, and with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden." Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing that should say of its make, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. The idea here is the, uh, the, the, the prophet is using a mocking tone. And uh, he's, he's uh, humbling these, these wise men, he, these, uh, these leaders of Judah who think that they've done a smart thing by making an alliance, that they've picked the right side in the battle. And, uh, and, and the Lord is calling it out through the prophet and saying, they think they know me. They say all the right things. They honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. And then this line, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They're doing it because it's the rules. They're following God because, well, that's what you're supposed to do. It hasn't sunk in. It's all on the surface. And so they go about their business like anybody else. They go about running their nation like any other nation, but they have this window dressing that, honors God now it's interesting that Paul goes back to a word of the prophet like this as he's addressing the Corinthians could it be I mean think about it when Paul starts to address this church that he cares about you have to wonder okay why does he select the the Bible verses that he selects I mean he's got all of scripture at his disposal does he just come up with what's convenient or does he maybe have a theme in mind that he's worried that the church in Corinth is going to be like Judah in the days of Isaiah. That they're going to lean on their own ability to do things a certain way, and they're going to 
cut themselves off from the real power, the real Spirit of God. It's what was supposed to make God's nation unique. That here you would have a people who'd be a light on a hill. And what made them unique is not that they were smarter or better than anybody else. In fact, they were often the underdog story. It didn't make any sense. Going all the way back to the choosing of Abraham. God saying, let's build a nation. I know. Get me the old guy and his wife that can't have children. I'll build a nation out of them. And every think tank on earth is saying to God, that God, that, no, that's, he's not qualified. God goes, I know, I know. And if you look at the stories in the Bible, it's always God selecting this person. Hmm, you're not really qualified, are you? Okay, good. Because then when I work through you, everybody's going to know what the real power is. Okay, now let's, let's take a look at Jeremiah 9, the other bookend of this argument that Paul's making. Uh, Jeremiah 9 verse 23 now jeremiah also has his own prophecy to jerusalem he's got a um he's got a word that they need to hear uh probably one of the most familiar is in jeremiah 7 where jeremiah warns them uh chapter 7 he says don't trust in these deceptive words this is the temple of the lord this is the temple of the lord was jeremiah 7 teaching us that there's a problem with the temple of the lord no the problem is they put their faith in the fact that God had his mailing address in their city. And Jeremiah says, that's not what you put your faith in. You put your faith in the Lord of the temple, not the temple of the Lord. That's my paraphrase. But same idea being uh, discussed here. He says, uh, thus says the Lord, this is Jeremiah, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his in his might let not the rich man boast in his riches but let him who boasts boasts in this that he understands and knows me that i am the lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things i delight declares the lord um this uh steadfast love that's god's chesed that's his loving kindness his devotion um, again, there's always a temptation for us to lean on our own ability to know things, or our own ability to work power, to work strength, uh, our own ability to buy things, to have purchasing power. I mean, he hits, he hits all three of them right here. Intelligence, uh, power, might, riches, wealth. But instead, what you should boast in, what you should, and by the way, boasting I know that we, we hear that and we're thinking, oh, you're not supposed to boast at all. No, no, this is not the child's lesson of don't be arrogant and proud. This is the idea of what are you placing your confidence in. In other words, if you're going to be proud of something so that you lean on it and say, I'm confident of this. He says, don't put your confidence in these things that the world values. Put your confidence in the fact that you know me. And God then is steadfast in his love steadfast in his justice steadfast in his righteousness that's where our confidence needs to be and by the way you'll notice that paul will pick up on that theme over and over again so now let's go back to first corinthians so here's here's paul and he's he's got both of these little quotations and by the way another one that that uh, he could be drawing off of uh, and it's a theme that Paul is very familiar with, is when Hannah goes to the uh, temple to pray in 1 Samuel. And when God exalts her, and again, who is she? She's the one that 
should not be successful. She does not have the power or the ability to bear children. Um, But she prays. She trusts in God. And God uses her, not the other wife, the more fertile wife. Instead, he uses the one that everyone would say, well, you know, I mean, she, um, she needs to be pitied or maybe she'll, she'll have a way. God uses her and chooses her to work his power through her. And so she sings a song that later on Mary will sing that same song. And it says, God turns the, this is my paraphrase, God turns the world upside down and the people who think they are powerful are not the ones who are powerful. And the people, he puts food in the mouth of the hungry. He, he, uh, you know, he humbles those who are proud that God's always reversing these things. Uh, so that no one can take pride in their own ability to do something. Which, by the way, just as an aside, isn't it interesting that when Jesus begins his ministry and he goes through the temptations in the uh, desert, he's not tempted with scandalous things. He's not tempted with um, indulgent passions or the things that we've always preached about. He's not tempted with, uh, you know... uh, how's the old phrase go, Uh, don't smoke, don't chew, or go with girls who do. You know, it's that kind of thing. He's not tempted with all that silly stuff, you know. He's, um, uh, you know, he's not tempted with, uh, you know, evil, nasty stuff. He's tempted to use his power to satisfy himself and to secure his own identity. When's the last time we've been tempted to turn rocks into bread? But Jesus has that authority. And by using that authority in his own name, he could solve problems of famine and hunger. But instead, he chooses to obey God. He's tempted to jump off of a tent. When's the last time you were tempted to do that? He's a temp- he, but he has the authority to summon the angels of heaven, the armies of heaven, to attend to him. He chooses to be obedient to God. And he certainly will not bow down to Satan and win the right to rule the world, he's going to trust that God will give him that right and that privilege. The temptation of Jesus is an interesting study in itself because I think Paul has seen this, that now all of a sudden he realizes, okay, even the Christ will not rely on his own ability, but he will humble himself and trust in God. So I think this is the text that Paul's working out of, and now he's, he's aiming it at the Corinthians, and he says, um, verse 20, so where's the, where's the wise person of this age? Um, and he talks about the, uh, the debater of this age. The, um, in ancient times, and, and this would be true of the time in Corinth, there were, there were uh, considered uh, uh, three, three uh, areas of learning that you had to excel in if you wanted to be a great scholarly person, if you wanted to be a philosopher, if you wanted to be a leader. They were grammar and logic. We, we still hold on to those. The third one sometimes we care about, but sometimes we don't. The third one is rhetoric. And we think of rhetoric as a, sort of a speaker's art. Okay, rhetoric, and it comes from that Greek word meaning words. Okay, rhema is the Greek word for words. And, and, and the way that you use speech and the way that you use words uh, to persuade and to convince and to teach and to entertain, 
that became very important. And uh, in fact, people would judge a philosophy not just in terms of its content, but in how well the speaker of it spoke. Now, we look down on that as a uh, negative. It's like, well, no, you know, listen to the argument, not the person. Uh, and yet, in truth, we, we enjoy when somebody says something clever, whether it's true or not. But, but they, they thought that the whole thing kind of went together as a full package. And it might be that Paul is not the best with, when it comes to rhetoric. I don't know. There, there's, there's arguments on this. That, uh, you know, maybe Apollos was the better speaker, public speaker. Well, whatever the case is, Paul's going to just dismiss all of that. And he says, that, that's not what's going to ultimately matter. He says, because I'm not going to come at you, and I did not come at you with that kind of power. Invested in those uh, classical, um, or those standard, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? See, my rhetoric's suffering a bit. Uh, those, those, uh, those traits, those, those abilities. He said, instead, what I came to you with was an, uh, you know, a raw message about the cross of Christ. And he said, that message does not sit well with the wisdom of the age. And here's why. Now, he says, if you look at it from two sides... You look at it from the side of the people who do not have the background of the Messiah, the Greeks. He says, the Greeks hear a message about someone's crucified, and they instantly think, oh, you know, criminal, failed leader. Um, you know, um, we, we live in the, the, the town of the hanging judge, uh, Judge Isaac Parker. And, of course, who do we tell most of the stories about? Judge Isaac Parker. Uh, you've really got to do your research to find stories about any of the, the, the characters who were ever hung, okay? And there's a few, and I understand, and people who know their history, they, they know some of this, and usually it's some cautionary tale or it's some great criminal who met his end, but you don't, you, you don't make heroes of the people who met their death on the gallows. That, that doesn't make sense. You know, maybe weep and mourn for someone unjustly accused or something like that, but you just feel sorry for them. But, I mean, we don't have a statue downtown of a fellow hanging on the end of a rope. We've got a statue of Bass Reeves on his horse with his gun. Why? Because he's our hero. He's going out to deliver justice. That makes sense. The message about Jesus is the message about a man who's crucified on a cross, and the equivalent to us would be someone hung on the gallows. The, the Romans could kill you in any number of ways, but if they crucified you, what they were doing is they were saying, don't mess with Rome. They were sending a message. Uh, today's the day where you get all the, the, the movies about the New Testament and Jesus and, um, you know, Ben-Hur. Uh, Ten Commandments was on last night. And so anything with Charlton Heston in it, you get this weekend. But the one, if you really want to see crucifixion depicted in the movies, watch Spartacus. Because at the end of Spartacus, that's Kirk Douglas, at the end of Spartacus, oh, I'm going to spoil it for you. Hey, look, it's been out since the 60s. If you haven't seen it by now, you're too late, okay? You can pause the tape here if you're listening on audio. Anyway, they crucify all these guys. And they've got them lined up on the highway, just hanging there like billboards. It was a message. 
It said, if you defy the power of Rome, we will kill you in a grisly matter, and we will scandalize you. And it was meant not only to kill you, but to shame you, to make an example of you. And uh, they still do this sort of brutality in places around the world today through different methods. But the idea then is to warn and to, uh, to humiliate. Um, you know, the cross that we often depict in Christian imagery is cleaned up. Uh, it, it, I understand none of his bones were broken. I understand that. But you don't have to have broken bones for it to get rather grisly. And, of course, we always put clothing on Christ, and that, that probably wasn't the case. Uh, part of the humiliation is to be dehumanized in that way. That's what's so wretched about the cross. So here's this Greek, this person who comes from this, and it says, wait a second. You're saying that the center of your uh, faith is a crucified leader? Well, that's, that's silly. That's crazy. That, as Paul says, that's folly. That's foolishness. Now, for the Jews, they get the idea that there can be a suffering servant. They get the idea of suffering for God in the midst of a hostile world. They've got the story of slavery in Egypt in their background. They've got the story of uh, exile in Babylon. They've got the prophecy of Isaiah 53. They read this well. But their problem is that when you talk about their Messiah, and it's the man that was crucified, the man from Nazareth who was crucified in Jerusalem, okay, that doesn't work is their problem. That, that's, that's a scandal to them. It, it disrupts everything. Paul says that, and this was Paul. Paul says that Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom. In other words, Greeks want it to make sense. So what's the idea? What's the, what's the sign that the Jew wants? Well, a sign is a symbol of power. A sign is an indication that the power of God is working. So what they want is they want the champion. That's what the Messiah is supposed to be. The Messiah is not supposed to come and suffer worse than us. He's supposed to come and alleviate our suffering. And Paul says that for those who have those kind of expectations of God, that God fits into their agenda, cross isn't going to make sense. But then Paul will say, and yet, that's exactly what I came and I preached when I preached to you. I didn't alter it. I didn't clean it up. He says, I came and I preached it. Uh, he said, uh, we preach, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. However, to those who are called, now he's not talking about some sort of like select group that get, you know, uh, their, their draft number pulled and it's like, oh, okay, you get to be called. Everybody else doesn't. He's talking, to the, he's talking about the ones um, who receive it, okay? He's talking about the ones who can accept it. He says, now, it doesn't matter whether they're Jew or Greek. They overcome their own expectations to realize that Christ, this is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So that now what happens in the cross is their categories of power and wisdom change. Remember those two prophecies. The people of God in Judah thought, hey, 
God will help us make an alliance with Egypt, and yeah, that's the way God's going to do it. Sounds good to us. Surely God will bless it. The prophet was saying, no, he won't. Uh, Jeremiah is saying, uh, listen, you, you, don't, you, don't boast in your ability to do things. The cross upends our definitions of power, our definitions of intelligence, our definitions of, um, of, of wisdom and skill. So that as we keep tracking with Paul's argument, we'll see it in chapter 2, he'll say, uh, I'll just skip ahead a little bit, 2-6, he says, 2-4 uh, rather, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's saying what you saw operating in me was something that defied the, the wisdom of men. And, and, and think about it. As Paul is preaching this message, part of the message that he's known for, and he says this in Galatians, is people are saying, wait a second, isn't he the one who was so dead set on persecuting and annihilating the followers of Jesus the Christ? Yes, that's who that is. Then why is he doing this now? He's the enemy of God, but now he's become, you know, he's become a, a proclaimer for God. Paul's very life bears witness to the fact that the categories have been upturned. And here's the thing. What he's saying to the Corinthians, what he's saying in his own life, is he's not saying that our normal standard world of the way it's supposed to be gets turned over to become something odd that God makes it. He's saying that God has the world the way it's supposed to be. We are the ones who've turned it over. And what we think is normal is not normal what we think is standard is not and he doesn't want the corinthians to make the same mistake that old judah made back in the days of the prophets and i'd say that we need to take a lesson from this too because it is so tempting for us to rely on our own ability to win favor with the governments of this world, to win favor with the powers that be, to trust in our own ability to earn money, to trust in our own ability to grow the church, to trust in our own ability to have intelligence and wisdom and, and uh, all of this kind of learning. And, and often we'll even try to reconcile Scripture with what's going on because we don't want to be embarrassed by the ancient oddness of Scripture and so about 200 years ago, when we started discovering that, my goodness, science is a wonderful thing, we started twisting and bending Scripture to fit into science, and it was never meant to do that. And I'm not saying we go back to a pre-scientific age where we believe in imps and demons and all of that. Science is good. If I've got some really bad illness, I want some science to show up. When I get on an airplane and I'm going to fly somewhere, I want there to be some science behind that. If I, if I look outside the airplane window and I see a witch doctor out there dancing around the wings, I'm getting off the plane. That's not what makes that metal bird go up. Now I'm all for science. But you can't take Scripture and say, hmm, this is a bit old and dog-eared. Okay, it doesn't really work anymore. I'll tell you what, we'll make it conform to science and it'll work in with all this stuff and then we won't be embarrassed. That's not the purpose of it. 
And at some point, there has to be something that tests even our science and our intelligence and our understanding. There's got to be something that challenges us. And he's saying that that's what this word of the cross does. Okay, so we're going to wrap it up right there, but I'm telling you, don't leave this behind as we keep going forward. In fact, he does a little bit of humbling there in verse 26, doesn't he? He says, hey, wait, before you get too far ahead, I want you to remember where you came from. He said, by worldly standards, none of you rank. That's the upshot of what he's saying. Now, it sounds like he's being mean to them. I know where some of y'all came from. But he's not doing that to humble them to, or to humiliate them, maybe to humble them, but not to humiliate them or shame them. He's doing that to say, that's not what counts. And yet their problem is going to be that they're going to start ranking themselves and measuring their, their worth in terms of the skills that they have. They're going to turn following Christ into something that, the, you know, it's just another enterprise like any other thing you see in the world. So we'll end right there. We'll pick this up next week. Um, Right now, we're going to sing this song. And if you need to partake of the Lord's Supper, it's been prepared in room 100 right out here with the pews in it. And let's stand and let's sing. And then our brother Lee Beeman will dismiss us in prayer.